The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 27, Undetermined. The world is full of obvious things, such as stating that knowledge is a process of piling facts. Though wisdom lies in simplification, Henry Miller once said, There is no mystery about disease, nor crime, nor war, nor the thousand and one things that plague us. But what of filling in those pesky blanks, so desperately begging for reason as to direct causation? Bearing in mind the words of world-renowned surgeon and author Richard Selzer, Autopsies give us facts, but not truth. Line A. Immediate cause and conditions, if any, which give rise to immediate cause. Immediate cause? Undetermined. With the parenthesis. But what is a parenthesis? A word, phrase, or clause that interrupts the text to offer an explanation, digression, or afterthought. And when used appropriately, a parenthetical comment may add a little needed variety, and thus, speculative causation, or the irrefutable fact that cannot go unstated. Stated parenthesis, body found with fourth degree burns as a result of residential fire, with no evidence that fire was the cause of death. With due to, or in consequence of, hastily scribbled out. But what of that other pesky word, evidence? And in what context is evidence required when it is the medical examiner's determination, alone in their sole discretion, the single necessity to determine an act of cause or manner of death? So what is this undetermined? Report of Coroner's Physician of the Corner of Fulton County, Illinois. I, John E. Murphy, and Grant C. Johnson, M.D., have examined the body identified to me by the coroner of this county as being Name, Tompkins, Donna. Date of death, 13 January, 1993. Place of death, Canton, Illinois. Place of examination, Springfield, Illinois. In my opinion, the cause of death was as follows. Undetermined. Body found with fourth degree burns as a result of a residential fire with no evidence that the fire was the cause of death. Conclusions are based upon the known circumstances of death as related to us at the time of autopsy, the post-mortem examination, and various laboratory studies. This lady had severe fourth-degree burns involving virtually the entire body. There were numerous skin splints and focal regions of tissue consumption. Important features of the case were the absence of soot in the larynx, trachea, and bronchi, and 6.8% carbon monoxide in the right atrium, 
and 9.6% carbon monoxide in the left atrium. The slightly elevated carbon monoxide levels were consistent with the fact that the descendant was a smoker. Blood drug scans were negative, and the cyanide was negative. The blood ethanol level was 0.054%. HIV antibodies were non-reactive. Nasal swabs for drugs were negative. A few spermatozoa raised the question as to when the descendant had intercourse during the postcoital interval. Since there was an interval of approximately 24 hours between the time of the body was found and the time of obtaining the vaginal and cervical specimens, it might seem reasonable to conclude that intercourse occurred shortly before death. However, it would be probably but equally reasonable to conclude that intercourse occurred somewhere between 24 to 48 hours prior to death since the survival of spermatosa would be within this time period and there was probably only limited disappearance of the spermatosa between the time the body was found and the time when the autopsy was performed. Obviously, one of the problems here is the effect on autopsy. Basically, it would be unwise to make any hard statement in regard to the time when coitus occurred. No spermatosa was identified on oral, rectal, or tracheal smears. The low carbon monoxide and lack of soot in the mouth, larynx, and tracheobronchial tree strongly suggest that the fire was not the cause of death. Deaths from sudden fires may be associated with only slightly raised carbon monoxide levels and sparse soot in the tracheobronchial tree. In our experience, sudden flash fires, self-immolation, in other words, setting oneself ablaze, have sparsely identified soot in the tracheobronchial tree and modestly elevated carbon monoxide levels. Therefore, disregarding self-immolation, we believe that this descendant and her child did not die from the fire and were dead at the time the fire started. At the time of autopsy, we could not discover a definite cause of death. The x-rays had no evidence of bullets, foreign bodies, or fractured bones within the body. Smothering or strangulation by manual means or by a soft wide ligature may be considered a possibility. Perhaps a vague clue to smothering or strangulation may have been evidence of aspiration seen on the microscopic slides. Could she have aspired during her struggle while being smothered or strangled? Obviously, this is a rather highly conjectural and challenging concept. The severe fourth degree burns made it impossible to identify surface wounds, bruises, lacerations, etc. There was no evidence of wounds in the deep tissues. Final disease process analysis, investigation of death summary. The decedent and her child were found dead in a residential fire. Autopsy data summary. One, approximately 100% involvement of the body by fourth degree burns and a few foci of third degree burns. Two, widespread skin splits. Three, congestion and edema of the lungs. Four, hemorrhage corpus letium. Five, no gastric contents. Six, Postmortem blood group and type. Group A, RH positive. 7. Postmortem ethanol levels. Blood, 0.045%. Fortuitous humor, 0.052%. 8. Postmortem HIV antibodies. Non-reactive. 9. Postmortem blood drug scan. Negative. Postmortem nasal swabs for drug scan. Negative. 11. Postmortem nasal swabs for drug scan. Negative. 12. Postmortem smears for spermatosa. Few spermatosa were identified on vaginal or cervical smears. 
no spermatozoa on oral, rectal, or tracheal smears. 13. Postmortem carbon monoxide level of the right heart blood, 6.8%, and of the left heart blood, 9.6% carboxyhemoglycobin saturation. 14. Absence of soot in the mouth, larynx, and tracheobronchial tree. 15. No definite cause of death was determined. No evidence that the fire caused death. Forensic Autopsy Data Record All procedures performed on 1-14-93 unless otherwise stated. 1. Identification through Fulton County Coroner Ron Pavley Fingerprinting not able to obtain. Palm prints not able to obtain. Dental survey procedure by Gregory Manning, Douglas Daniels. 2. Evidence and disposition. Hair samples. Scalp pulled and combed. Smears of bodily orifices. Smears for spermatosa, oral, rectal, tracheal, vaginal, and cervical. All of the above procedures were performed by Gregory Manning and Douglas Daniels. One glass test tube, lavender top, containing blood and EDTA of one coated are collected. 3. Personal effects and disposition. Clothing, none. Jewelry, none. 4. X-rays. Area of body, skull, chest, and neck. 5. Time of death and methods of determination. A rectal temperature was taken on 1-13-93 at 14-15-hundred hours and recorded at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. Rigidity and lividity was taken on 1-13-93 at 14-20-hundred hours. Right and left virtuous humor was drawn on 1-13-93 at 14-40-hundred hours. Signed, John E. Murphy, M.D. and Grant C. Johnson, M.D. The result for Justine Tompkins were virtually identical. Spare blood alcohol content, which was zero. Carbon levels were practically nil. And rectal temperature recordings were seven degrees lower at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Given her small stature, this would make sense. Also, the left side of Justine's trunk and right arm were spared fourth degree burns, possibly due to her positioning on the sofa bed next to her mother's right side. In addition to Justine's skin splits, her interior abdominal wall had ruptured. Notable similarities of results included no clothing nor jewelry, neither a determined time of death nor an exact determination of the cause of death, and, like her mother, smothering and strangulation have been considered, though not resolute. It is important to note that this hypothesis was a somewhat highly conjectural and challenging concept. In addition, for Donna, it was stated but utterly unwise to make any hard statement in regard to the time when her last act of intercourse had occurred. For her three-year-old daughter Justine, absolutely no evidence of sexual abuse was discovered upon examination. Though both mother and daughter's immediate causes of death were recorded as undetermined, line B on the certificate of death states, under suspicious conditions. On January 15th, one day after the fire at 365 South First Avenue, at around 1 p.m., Canton Fire Department Lieutenant John Stanko received an urgent telephone call from Dr. Murphy. We have a problem, said Murphy. 
Go on, said Lieutenant Stenko. Carbon monoxide levels were extremely low for both Donna and Justine, and it is in my opinion that both victims were dead before the fire. He went on to say that he had requested that both bodies be returned to the Memorial Medical Center in Springfield for further examination. It's already in the works, he said. And Investigator Stenko contacted ATF agents John Marocca and Jack Melody. Special Agent Marocca was en route from Chicago, and Agent Melody informed Lieutenant Stenko that he would be arriving later that day. Lieutenant Stenko then called Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner and the Illinois State Police Department of Criminal Investigation in order to form a combined law enforcement effort to investigate the murder of the two victims, with the primary concern being that of the double homicide, with the fire now a secondary concern. Lieutenant Stenko also called up Canton Police Department Sergeant David Ayers. And upon arrival at the burnt-out residence on South First Avenue, Stenko relayed the information that had been provided to him by Dr. Murphy. And from that point forward, the taped-off scene was treated as a crime scene. Lieutenant Stenko showed Sergeant Ayers the inside of the apartment. Though no processing was done at the time, the building remained under watch by auxiliary police personnel. At around 6 p.m. that evening, Sergeant Ayers discovered that an insurance agent had recorded an interview with the man who had first discovered the fire, National Bank Trust Officer David Haynes and the detective made a copy of the cassette tape, keeping the original while giving the copy back to the insurance agent. A few days later, on January 19th, Illinois State Fire Marshal Ted Anderson traveled downstate to dive headfirst into the investigation. And along with Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer, he made the decision to conduct interviews with the employees of the National Bank of Canton, where Donna Tompkins and her boss, Trust Officer David Haynes, had worked. But the two agents decided to stop first by the residence of Mr. Mike Tucker, who had met with David Haynes the morning of the fire, January the 13th. Mr. Tucker essentially stated that he had met with David Haynes very close to 9 a.m. He said that he had arrived about 10 minutes prior to the meeting and that the meeting took about 15 minutes, but the business talk lasted only about 30 seconds to two minutes, while the remaining time was just small talk. And where did the meeting with Mr. Haynes take place, he was asked. In his office, said Mr. Tucker, adding that when he left the bank after the meeting at around 9.15 a.m., I heard Dave asking, where is Donna, then saying he might swing by her house. The agents thanked Mr. Tucker and went about their way. Upon arriving at the bank housed in a mid-century limestone block building that sat low with the Midwestern land, just a block off the town's historic square, the two agents met with the first employee to be interviewed that day. Mr. Rick Clendenst, and the questioning commenced in a back basement office at 10.10 a.m. Mr. Clendenst said he had worked at the bank for 15 years but did not work with Donna. We were good friends though, he said, and then stated that on the morning of the incident, at around 9 a.m., I had been in the basement faxing when Hazel said that Donna had not shown up. When asked further about his relationship with Donna, Mr. Clendenst said it was mainly business. And as agents inquired if Donna had ever confided in him about her divorce, she told me John had threatened her both physically and mentally, but that he didn't know John Tompkins personally. No, we did not date, he said, but rumors were going around about us. And when asked if he knew anyone else Donna had been seen, she hadn't been dating anyone in the bank, but that she had gone out with her boss David Haynes once or twice in the past, stating, Dave was working at Northwestern. And then he admitted, yeah, Donna and I took a drive a few times. And the love letters found in her apartment that were signed by you, he was asked? Yes, they were from me, but that was over a year ago. 
One of the agents stated, We noticed by the date that some were written prior to her separation from John. Mr. Clinton dropped his head in silence. Have you spoken with Mr. Haynes since the fire, he was asked. I have. And what did he have to say? Well, he said he felt bad about what happened. The agents then asked if he knew of any other employees at the bank whom Donna considered a close friend. And Mr. Clinton said, Not really, but possibly Mary Munson. Adding, Donna was young and intelligent, and the older ladies didn't really take to her. There was a lot of gossip. By whom? Mostly Mary, but Lori Warden and Rob Havens, I'd say. Mr. Robbins was interviewed next at around 10.35 a.m. Mr. Havens stated that he and Donna were only casual friends. Only at work, he said. Adding, no, we did not see each other ever outside the bank. He also said that he knew Donna had not reported for work on January 13th, but that he had heard it only through word of mouth. He stated that he had been at the bank since 7.30 a.m. that morning for a meeting, and he saw David Haynes at around 8 and spoke to him for a few minutes, but with no mention of Donna. I really knew nothing until I heard of the fire, he said. And when asked, he said, Yes, I knew about the divorce, but I don't know of any of the circumstances. And I only knew John well enough to say hi in passing. He said there had been much gossip, that Donna had been dating a UPS delivery man named Terry Haynes, emphasizing, but that was just what I heard. I don't really know anything about her social life. At 11.15 a.m., the agents met with Miss Hazel Brown. Miss Brown told the agents that she had last worked with Donna on Tuesday, January 12th, and that she didn't notice anything unusual. But come to think of it, she said, after a slight pause, Donna did seem upset about having to cancel a dentist appointment. She said it was Donna's responsibility to make the morning ATM pickup, and that people became concerned at around 9 a.m. when Donna had not yet arrived with the bags of cash. People's thoughts were turning to stories you hear on television. All sorts of scenarios are going through our heads, she said. She then stated that David Haynes had made a few calls at Donna's house at about 10 after 9. No, I'm not the one who told Dave she had not arrived, she said when asked. Marilyn is the one who told me about it. Marilyn who? Marilyn Riley. Marilyn told me Dave was going to go and look for Donna. And can you remind us at what time you arrived at the bank that morning? A little after 8, I suppose. You see, I can't punch in until around 8.23. It was Mr. Haynes already at the bank when you arrived. He was. And when asked about Donna's social activities, Miss Brown stated that she was unaware, adding that to her knowledge, Mary Munson and Marilyn Riley were her closest friends at the bank. We didn't socialize much, she said, but I know that she was also working over at the Elks for some extra money. I know she needed the cash. But as I said, we didn't talk much. There were a lot of rumors going around, though. Such as what? What kind of rumors? Well, I know she had been down lately because of the divorce and her mother's death, and one day she did tell me about an incident with her husband over Christmas. I guess John had brought their daughter Justine home one night, and the little one was tired, and John was upset he had to carry all the presents into the house himself, so he made Justine walk. Poor thing. Do you know if Donna often let John in the house? Donna said she never let John inside because he could become really violent at the drop of a hat, and I remember one day she even brought in a section of a door he had broken when she left him. Donna, she was always on edge over John. He was always calling her up and asking her on dates, but she always refused him. And what did Donna usually wear to work? What did she wear on January 12th, the last day you worked with her? If I remember correctly, she wore a short leather jacket, blue flowered skirt and top, and a pair of black heels. And she had been carrying a small leather clutch ever since returning from Christmas vacation. 
Would she always dress that way, even in the winter? Yes, she never wore heavy clothes. You mentioned Christmas vacation. Do you know what Miss Tompkins did for Christmas? Well, she said she went back east and had a good time with her family. She even brought pictures of the trip into work. So tell us more about these personality changes Donna had leading up to the incident. Well, I hadn't really noticed any. Nothing recent, at least. She had been dealing with a divorce for quite some time now. And do you know of anyone Donna had recently been dating? Well, there was a Mr. Terry Haynes, I believe, and I thought she had been seeing another man a few times. Anyone here at the bank? No, not that I am aware of. Back to the morning of the fire. Did you see Mr. Haynes meet with anyone that morning? No, not that I recall, and if he did, it certainly was not in his office. The agents made eyes and took notes. Can you tell us what happened after Mr. Haynes was looking for Miss Tompkins? Well, he called me up here at the bank and told me that no one answered it, but that her car was in the garage. And he asked if he should call the police, and I told him he should. And I remember shortly after we hung up, a lady came in. She said she was needing to get a hold of Donna, but I told her Donna was not in and she left. Did you get this lady's name? You know, I didn't think of it. And what happened after that? Well, not much until we all found out what happened. And then when Dave returned, he came in and sat down on my desk. He said that after he knocked on her door and no one answered, that he had called police from Polly Newcomb's apartment. Did Mr. Haynes speak of the fire? Yeah, he said it was real bad and that he burned himself, singed his hair, you could smell it, and he had a cut under his chin. But he talked more to Joanne Westover than he did me. You might want to talk to her. And was anyone else present when Mr. Haynes returned to the bank? Well, Catherine Tabor may have been there when Dave talked to Joanne Westover. There's another Joanne, Joanne Folk. She would have usually been there, but she called in sick for work that day. I know Ken Long was there, and he talked to Joanne a bit. Ken had his minister come into the bank later on and pray with us. At 11.50 a.m., the agents invited Miss Sheila Wilson into the makeshift subterranean interview room. And Miss Wilson stated that she had known Donna and that, in fact, they had been taking some banking classes together out of Spoon River College. She said that she did not directly work with Donna, but that they would see each other and chat in the break room quite a bit. She also stated that she knew Donna was to pick up the deposits from the Chestnut ATM and that people grew worried when she did not arrive with the money bags. I was the one who told Dave she had not arrived, she said. And when Dave called, no one picked up and he got the answering machine. My superior, Sheila Lover, had asked me to call up the daycare to see if Justine was there. I told Dave that she hadn't dropped Justine off yet, and he tried Donna's house again, but her machine picked up again, and that's when I suggested he run over and check on her, and he said he was going to. Did you see Mr. Haynes leave the bank for Donna's that day? You know I didn't, but I did see Max Scott leave soon after Dave. I just didn't understand why Donna wasn't up and going early that morning before the fire had broken out, and there was lots of people talking, saying that they thought it was suicide. But I didn't think so. Donna never seemed depressed to me. Miss Wilson added that she did not know Donna that well, only that she knew she had been on vacation for two weeks, stating, I know she had attended some religious retreat, and I remember she had said that it had been a long time since she felt so loved. She said that her husband was just being an ass about things, and that she knew it was going to take a long time to get the divorce finalized. All I know is that it seemed to me that John was overly concerned with money, and that he didn't seem to have much to do with her daughter Justine. And when asked if she was aware of anyone Donna may have been dating at the time, Miss Wilson said, Oh, I only heard rumors, but I think she had been seeing a guy by the name of Terry Haynes up at the Elks. 
but she left him for another guy named Rod, but I don't really know of anyone else. The agents then took a quick break to compare notes before calling in Miss Mary Munson at 12.20pm. Miss Munson stated that she had worked the switchboard for around two years, and that she and Donna had talked a lot about the situation with John Tompkins. Donna told me she didn't want John in the apartment, because she didn't know how out of control he would get, she said, and that she would meet John at the door. Donna didn't love him anymore, she said. She was feeling really alone, and I know that she wasn't happy. John was always screaming at her, calling her an eastern snob. Can you tell us when Miss Tompkins left John? It was in February last year. She took Justine and moved in with an aunt until she found her own place. Miss Munson added that Donna was very happy with Rod Franciscovich, stating, Just last Monday, she was telling me how well they were getting on. He'd given her a, what do you call it, one of those boom boxes and a coffee maker that turned on automatically. Miss Munson also said that Terry Haynes had called Donna up on the previous Saturday before the fire, stating, Terry told her that his ex-wife was getting back with her boyfriend, and he started telling Donna how much he still loved her. He had given her all kinds of cards. But Donna wasn't falling for it. She said she wanted nothing to do with him. Donna knew by now that he had beaten his ex-wife. And she had just seen them together somewhere out and about. Donna knew he was a liar, and that he and his ex-wife were still living together. Terry was a real mess. He had just tried to kill himself two or three weeks earlier, I think by hooking a hose up from his car to his house. Miss Munson added that she knew Donna had seen David Haynes back when they were both working at the community bank, saying, but that was before either of them was married. And do you believe that they had been seeing each other lately, Donna and Mr. Haynes? No, I don't think anything was going on now. I do know that Donna and Rick, Rick? Rick Clendenst. He and Donna were real close. And what do you mean by close? Asked the agents, making eyes. I'd say Donna considered it a valued relationship, and she confided in him a lot of the time. At 12.50, the agents met with Mr. Marilyn Riley. Miss Riley stated that she had worked at the bank since 76, saying, Yeah, Donna and I were friends. I knew her since she lived on the farm. She called me her Cuba mother. And I knew John back in school. We kind of grew up together, Cuba being a small town and all. She stated that she had listened to Donna vent on many occasions, and that Donna often talked about her personal problems and her ongoing divorce from John. From what I gather, John didn't pay much attention to Justine, she said, and he would get real emotional and mad about things all the time. Can you give us an example of what would make John angry? Well, when Donna would try to talk to her family, John would mock her, saying things like her mother was not really sick. You see, Donna's mother had cancer and was dying. And when Donna was on the phone with her, she'd ask John if he could keep an eye on Justine. But John, he would never pay any attention to her. He was even late for Donna's mother's visitation up in Rock Falls. Yeah, I know he was not there for her. It's a shame. Miss Riley, are you aware if John ever struck Donna? Not that I know of. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have put up with that. But I do recall when Donna was going to leave John, she said he had come into the bathroom and he told her that she looked real nice and that he wanted to take her to bed. Donna asked him how he could say such a thing after all that had happened and that was when he hit the door frame and broke it. She even brought in a piece to show the gals here at the bank the next day. Miss Riley stated that after Donna left John, he called her up at the bank a lot, adding, Donna told him she didn't have anything against him, but she knew all that mattered to him was money. 
and only was it rainy and John couldn't get anything done on the farm when he called up and asked to see Justine. And he'd take her to McDonald's. She said that sometimes he'd call up even as late as 10 p.m. on work nights. But yeah, Donna always met him at the door. She never wanted to let him in the house. And come to think of it, John knew he was to see Justine on that Wednesday evening. Are you aware of anyone whom Donna had been dating recently? I know she was dating the UPS man, but Donna, she was in no hurry to get involved with anyone, not after John. The agents had also met with Mr. Max Scott, Senior Vice President of the National Bank. Mr. Scott had told the investigators that he had been working the morning of the fire and had been informed by David Haynes that Donna had not yet arrived. David had told him he was going to go check on Donna and after he left, Mr. Scott himself tried to call at Donna's residence. Had the answering machine picked up when no one answered, he was asked. It did not, though the phone did ring, he said. And something just didn't feel right to me. And the thought of a fire even crossed my mind. Mr. Scott said he left the bank and drove to Donna's residence. And as he approached the house from the north and was getting out of his car, he saw smoke coming from the building. Also, he mentioned that a lady from the upstairs apartment was coming down, and that he had asked her what was going on and if she knew where David was at. She said there was a fire or something like that, he told the investigators. He then stated that he went to the south side of the house and saw fire coming out of the door, adding, A police car was pulling up out front, and I told the officer to call the fire department. And he said that he then went back around the back of the house, where he saw David trying to climb into a back window, saying, Dave was yelling that he had to get them out. So we both started yelling inside the windows he had broken out. And did you hear any reply? No, we did not. The smoke was just terrible. Did he see any flames? No, only smoke. Mr. Scott said the two then went back toward the front door of the house and saw more flames coming out of Donna's door, and that the fire department had by then arrived and concentrated their rescue efforts in the back where David had broken out the windows. How long did you remain on scene after the fire department arrived, he was asked, until we found out the bodies were found inside. Did you know of any personal problems Donna had been having lately? No, only that she was in the process of obtaining a divorce. Do you know anyone who would for any reason have intentionally set fire to Donna's residence? No, I can't say I do, he said. He then agreed to furnish any phone records showing the calls made from the bank to Donna's residence the morning of the incident. Officers also spoke with Joanne Folk, who had called in sick the day of Donna's death, and Miss Folk stated that she had worked at the bank since 1985, and that she presently, and for the previous two years, had been the vault attendant for safety deposit. Miss Folk said, I've known Donna since 89. Yeah, I'd say we've been good friends. Probably not as close lately due to the age difference and all, but yeah, we were still good friends. But I'd say Mary was probably closer to Donna, being closer to the same age and all. Miss Folk was asked what she could recall about Donna in the last few months and weeks, and she said, Donna had been sponsored to attend some type of Catholic event in Peoria by a good friend by the name of Franciscovich. By good friend, do you mean the two had been dating? No, I don't think they were dating per se. But yeah, they were extremely good friends. I know she'd been dating a UPS worker, but it ended because he had become too possessive like her husband. She was asked if she could describe Donna's work attire, and Miss Folk stated that Donna had gotten a new purse around Christmas time, which she described as deep red in color, leather, small to medium sized. I know she had borrowed a small clutch from one of her sisters when she took a trip back east, but stated that she was confident that Donna now carried the new leather one. I've been ill and didn't come into work on the 12th, nor the 13th, she said. 
And when asked, no, Donna didn't smoke. If she did, I sure wasn't aware of it. She was always complaining after being around someone smoking and said that she hated the smell of it. As far as Miss Folk knew, Donna liked her new apartment and was neither sad nor depressed. The only problem she had, said Miss Folk, was with her oven. It didn't work, missing a control knob or something. And she continued on to state, Donna wasn't having any money problems or nothing. She was making ends meet, and she sure was looking forward to getting that divorce over with. As the investigators wrapped up their interviews for the day with Donna's fellow co-workers at the bank, they made their way to Canton Fire Department to speak with first responders. However, these interviews have all but vanished from the official files. That's the thing about records. Once statements and facts are recorded, they are permanent. That is, until they ain't, per se. Until they fall behind the file cabinet, or under the almighty redaction sharpie, those certain statements and facts, truths, half-truths, and downright lies, as well as conclusions, opinions, and estimated guesses, can all fall victim at any given time to the big ballpoint pen, or rather, a specific swing line stapler that might attach indefinitely and for all time a corrected cause of death certificate. Superseding the original, immediate cause of death on Don and Justine's coroner's report, which read clear as day in jet black Indian ink and 12 point font, undetermined have been determined in 1993 by Illinois State Pathologists of Springfield, John E. Murphy, M.D., and Grant C. Johnson, M.D. In 1998, Mr. Jim West had his own version of events. Mr. Jim West was a local coroner residing at 176 North Adams Street in Lewistown, Illinois, who would go on to hereby certify, five years after the fire, concerning the deaths of Don and Justine Tompkins, that the death certificate should be corrected as follows to reflect post-mortem and or other findings which were not available when the cause of death was initially certified on the certification of death. Immediate cause of death now states asphyxiation due to manual or mechanical strangulation or smothering. Signed, Jim West, Coroner. Date, 03-1998. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I've offered you a little peek into the not-so-distant future of this case. But even with such insight, the question remains. How do we end up here, in a forthcoming where facts have undoubtedly piled tall with such specific determination of causation? Bear in mind the words of the world-renowned surgeon and author Richard Selzer. Autopsies give us facts, but not truth. I must ask, ladies and gentlemen, does this fact, amongst many, remained self-evident even as the years rolled by, or had a more significant accumulation of pathological evidence ring louder true. After all, though wisdom lies in its simplification, knowledge is indeed a piling up of facts. But what I ask of you, will this five-year period provide the simplification needed to supply the wisdom of assertion, when it is indeed the medical examiner's determination, alone in their sole discretion, the single necessity to determine an exact cause and manner of death at any given moment in time? Or has this period simply reshaped necessity of preference? Ladies and gentlemen, only time shall tell. Jury, I shall leave you with this. Obviously, this is a rather highly conjectural and challengeable concept. In other words, 
an unwise choice to make any hard statement in regard to time. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>